is our, which is what we've been reading, and we will jump into that if you, if that's not the proper term. Uh, we will venture into Job with fear and trepidation, hopefully next week. But I wanted to talk to you uh, this week about some things that I think are important to us. I've actually entitled this, What Our Culture Needs, or Don't Give In. You can choose whichever one you wish, or you can make up your own. I don't care. Um, Let's read Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I'm going to turn there, and I'm going to uh, begin reading. And by the way, there are several in here who have reading things, um, which we'll get to here in just a minute. So those of you who have those, hang on to them. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Isn't that funny? I thought worship was singing. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Um, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. So, um, things like this have happened um, occasionally over the 40-plus years that I've been doing this, where I felt I had something special to share with you, and uh, uh, and there would be a seeming um, unrelated um, well, what's the term uh, the, where unrelated circumstances would would diminish our crowd. And I have frequently, (laughs) at that point, I asked myself two questions. Lord, have I really messed this message up and missed you and you're keeping everybody away so they won't hear it? Or two, two, um, is this an attack of the enemy? Or three, is it just one of those things, quit overthinking it, okay? So I ask myself those three questions today. I do not know the answer. What I do know is I'm going to go ahead and do what I thought I should do. And uh, I will know tomorrow whether or not it was a, a mistake, I won't know this afternoon because I never know in the afternoon. As a matter of fact, most afternoons I go home severely depressed, thinking everything I said was a flop. So, say uh, that's kind of an exaggeration. That's not true most of the time, but it is true sometimes. So, at this past week, as some of you know, I I, I don't know. I, I publicized it somewhat. I know I let the leaders know. I went away to the. Uh, um, uh, Great Lakes District meeting 
in uh, Michigan, left on Sunday afternoon, uh, late afternoon, and was over there on Monday, Monday and Tuesday for um, the, the, the meetings that were there. And um, out of that, uh, out of the general sessions we had and out of the small group we had, I came away with some things I wanted to share with you. Now, the, the first one, uh, the introduction to this, I guess, um, is to say to you from Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, that the gospel, when applied by the Holy Spirit, will change us. Andy, my clock is gone. Um, will change us. It will, it will, over time, make us like Christ. Let me read to you from Romans 8. And again, just there's more to the context than what I'm reading, but I think you'll get the idea and I think you'll be familiar with the concept. Romans chapter 8, verses 29 um, and 30. He says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those he called, he also justified, and those he justified, he also glorified. Um, <clears throat> so there are other verses that we could look at, but we hear, here we see this progression, this um, salvation progression of the Lord calling us to make us like unto himself. And, and that... That's the goal, that's what God's doing, and, and the passage that we read a little bit later here in the book of Romans, where Paul pleads with them to be transformed, is, is part of that whole process. So the gospel, when applied by the Holy Spirit to our lives, will change us and make us over time like Christ. In our personal life, all aspects of it, every decision, um, every, every decision, if, if we... If we in our life spend our money foolishly, the Holy Spirit wants to and will, if given the opportunity, correct that. If we dress immodestly, He will correct that. If we have ungodly language, He will correct that. If, if we have an anger issue, He will correct that. If we have a mistrust issue or a control issue, He will correct that. And see what I'm talking about? I'm talking about not just personality issues, but, but those things within us that are connected to this old world that he wants us to be transformed away from. If we trust in others rather than trust in God, he'll correct that. The Holy Spirit will correct those things in our lives that do not glorify the Lord so that we will be made over time more and more from glory to glory, as the New Testament says, like his Son, Jesus Christ. And ultimately, that transformation will be complete when we stand before him, when this mortal puts on immortality and this corruptible flesh puts on incorruption. Let me, let me uh, we'll read two or three more scriptures here quickly. John 15, I forget who has this, John 15, 17 through 19. Real loud now, Jacob.
All right, so we've got this conflict between us and the world. Hopefully you can all hear that. Ephesians 2, 1 through 6. That six. All right. That, that that that's just a wonderful passage. You could continue reading, but once again, it puts this contradi- uh, uh, uh not a contradiction, but this this contrast between the old and the new. And when when Paul writes and he writes to these believers, all, by the way, all that's past tense. He said, "You once were. This is the way you lived. You were the children of wrath, and so on and so forth." And he says, "But now," and he talks about the new. So we have once again this contrast. First, first John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lusts of the flesh and the lusts of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. Amen. So don't love the world. If you love the world, the love of the Father is where? Not in you. Now, we fight this battle all the time within ourselves because we, we live in a physical world that affects us. We, we see it. You know, someone mentioned the beautiful colors. I was here yesterday evening, um, late afternoon, early evening when the sun was going down and the sun was setting over here and bouncing off of these beautiful trees here. So this hallway was filled with red and orange color. And so and, and it was really neat. I don't know why I never noticed it before. I guess I was here at the wrong time or whatever. But it was really neat. So we look around, we see all this stuff. So when we see things like that, if we're a believer, we're supposed to think something to ourselves, man, God is good. Look at the beautiful things that God made. And then there are other conclusions that we can draw from that. You know, God takes care of these things. Oh, I remember the scripture Jesus said, a sparrow cannot fall without the Father knowing. And so we run those, th- the Holy Spirit does that within us and runs those things to our mind and separates Now, separates us from this world. If we looked out there and we said, oh, nature's great, you know, and we, we live a life absent from the awareness and the knowledge of God revealed th- through his scripture, then we're, we're missing it. We're not being conformed, or excuse me, we're not being transformed, we are conformed. We're just living in this world. So that goes on personally. And when I was gone, I began to, or I I had thoughts about all of these things that I want to talk to you about. So one of them is, okay, that's great. What about church life? What about the life of these ecclesiastical organizations that we call 
churches. When I got there, uh, I, um, I went over on Sunday. The meeting started Monday morning or, or, or Monday afternoon. I went over after doing some work in my room in the morning, and I went on over there, and well, I was walking around. I took a tour of this place, huge facility. I mean, really, it was really nice. It was really well done, built in a, built in a, a large, uh, uh, built in a wealthy area, um, very, very nice building. It, some of you would appreciate the fact that they had multiple coffee stations throughout the building. So you actually could get a coffee over here at the main thing when you came in the door and walk, you know, a hundred feet and throw it away and get a new one. Okay. So it was, uh, if you were a coffee drinker, it, it was, it, it was all, it was all good. But I looked at, I looked at all that and I said, you know, we wouldn't be here. This conference wouldn't be able to be here if these people hadn't built this building. And yet this is the antithesis of what I think Christianity ought to be to some degree. We'll talk more about buildings in a minute. We went into the worship and singing part. They had at least 20 or 25 minutes of, of worship, folks, worship before the speakers each time. There was, I think, one hymn, um, there, although there were no hymnals. There was no music. Did you notice this morning that some of our people were singing parts? You can't do that unless you're really smart, and they, and they might be, without music where those parts are written down. So all of these were words flashed up on the, on the wall, and I think there was, one of them was a hymn. I didn't, I didn't recognize, I didn't know that it was a hymn, I didn't know the song, but it didn't sound like the rest of the songs. Okay? Because the rest of the songs were very simple and repetitive and emotional and sometimes manipulative. I, uh, why is there no hymnal here? As I was driving in this morning, I've, I've, <laughs> I've got XM radio, so I flipped on the uh, um, symphony channel, and uh, they were playing a mass. It was uh, someone had written this mass, and I listened to it for a little bit, and I said, you know, I can't understand a word they're saying. I have no idea what language it was in. So I flipped it over to the Christian channel, and... Uh, uh, I heard a song called God's Not Done With You. And uh, it was sang by this androgynous singer. Now there was a little picture on the, you know, on the screen in my car. There was a little picture of this person. Um, but it wasn't appropriate for me to stick my head down there and try to figure out if it was a male or a female uh, while I was driving, if that makes any sense. So uh, I thought the, the words about this thing are all about you. Every songwriter, all of this is to one degree or another subjective. Okay, So when, when we relate to God, and we, we write down that relationship in, you know, that bubbles out in this poet's pen, and as he explains this relationship, it's going to be an interaction, you know, it's so it's going to go both ways, 
But somewhere along the somewhere along in there, we have to expand or, or expound or, or, or proclaim how wonderful God is. And God is wonderful whether He's good to you in the way you think in the way you perceive good. God is wonderful and good whether you perceive you're being dwelt good, uh, you're being dealt in a good way or not. Okay. So don't just say because some blessing happened, God is good. When some terrible thing happened, say, God is good. One of my friends on Facebook lives in Florida and his house was damaged. And I saw this morning he posted in the scripture from the prophets where it talks about when all the fig trees drop their fruit and there is no fruit on the vine. And it goes on and gives this litany of all the destruction and then it talks about how wonderful God is. That's was his Facebook testimony. So, I go back to this chorus thing. There, there has to be some exchange, but it can't all be one-sided. We, we, we live in a world... Um, how, do, how do I say this? Don't think it odd that the world out here that we're not supposed to be a part of thinks it's all about them. When in many instances, the church of Jesus Christ, which is supposed to be the pillar and support of truth, substantiates that principle and puts music to it so you'll hear the words and remember them and they'll stick in your head and you'll say them over and over and over to yourself. And I couldn't help as I thought about that to think about this song that we sang last week. Let me read to you the poetry, the words, before, because I don't remember what the tune was, so you don't want me to sing anyway. It says, God of grace and God of glory, on thy people pour thy power. Crown thine ancient church's story. Bring her bud to glorious flower. Grant us wisdom. Grant us courage for the facing of this hour, for the facing of this hour. Lo, the hosts of evil round us. Scorn thy Christ, assail his ways. Fears and doubts too long have bound us. Free our hearts to work and praise. Grant us wisdom, grant us courage for the living of these days. For the living of these days. Cure thy children's warring madness. Bend our pride to thy control. Shame our wanton, selfish gladness. Rich in things and poor in soul. Grant us wisdom. Grant us courage. Lest we miss thy kingdom's goal. Lest we miss thy kingdom's goal. One more verse. Set our feet on lofty places. Gird our lives that they may be, armored with all Christ-like graces in the fight to set men free. Grant us wisdom, grant us courage, that we fail not man nor thee, that we fail not man nor thee. Now, once again, I already told you my trepidations about saying some of these things, but I'm going to say it 
nonetheless, it is my firm conviction that the world needs to hear the message of this hymn. That the church needs to hear the message of this hymn. More than they do a song, God's Not Done With You. My group, the group that I went into, was called Normal Pastors. Uh, we had lots of fun with the people who weren't in our group, who were the what? Abnormal pastors. Actually, this group was supposed to be a group of people who pastor small churches. It was the single largest small group in the, in the thing. We had almost twice as many as most of the other groups. Um, and it, it was an interesting thing. We went around. There were some practical things in there, like people would say, you know, say, well, how do you make contact with visitors and what, what, what software, email program, or things like that do you, do you use? Um, but a lot of it was commiseration. I'll, I'll follow up more here in, in a few minutes. Um, but I want to tell you one of the takeaways. At, at, at kind of at the close of the thing, the guy shared a story about a book he read about the coffee culture and how coffee culture took over, started in the northwest corner of our country kind of and swept it, which is why, it's interestingly, this church had coffee bars all over the place. Or, no, they're not bars, excuse me. Coffee counters. Uh, coffee stations, that's where they were. Stations. That's a sanctified word, station. All right, so... Um, <laughs> uh, and and the, and the question was brought out in the book, you know, do these uh, chain coffee places like Starbucks hurt the mom and pop places that were already in the communities? And the bottom line was, no. They actually create more coffee drinkers. They introduce people to coffee, and so there's actually now more of a customer base for the mom and pop places to enjoy with one exception. When the mom and pop places try to act like the chains. Because when they do, what do they do? They lose their integrity. Folks, we have around the world this morning, and especially around the, West, around the United States and Western culture, we have churches, community churches who are in their communities. I don't even like the word small or large because I think it focuses our attention on the wrong thing. And when people ask me now how many we run, I say I don't count them. And if they say why, I say my people are not a commodity to be counted. And excuse me if you don't like the term my people, but that communicates. So all over the country today, there are people in community churches repudiating who they are by trying to be something they are not. Uh, I thought it was also interesting because one of the things that was shared, there were positive things that were shared. And one of the, one of the fellows has a church, is a, uh, planning a church, and they're using a, a Y, I think it was a YMCA, I don't know, it was a Y, to, to meet. And so every Sunday they come in, they set up chairs, and then when they're done, they tear the chairs down. 
And it was an interesting thing because he said, you know what, when we tear down after, after Sunday, it's been amazing to see people introduce themselves to other people. Now, it's, a new, it's brand new, so nobody, you know, most folks don't know the other folks because they're all new. It's been amazing to see how they, how they interact and they introduce one another. Or they, you know, they introduce themselves and they talk to one another and they're laughing and they're carrying on. He says, we've had visitors come in who've never been there before and they help tear down the chairs and all, this, and all this other stuff is going on. At the same time, we found out that the larger churches are trying to break into small groups because they realize you can't really have Christian community and fellowship, koinonia, which is what the word is, you can't really have it in a large group. You have to be where you can know people, know their names, know their kids' names, know where they work, know how to pray for them. I hope that makes some sense. So the, these, these expansive places out here are trying to get people down into smaller groups so they can have a relational connection with one another. And this guy is talking about how it happened. (laughs) What did he have to do with it? He said, uh, let's tear the chairs down. And so it happened all by itself because that's what the Holy Spirit does. I do not believe the large organizational church is a model that truly reflects New Testament Christianity. Now... um, if you live in a large, if if this fellowship was in a large community, it would be bigger than it is. There'd be no way to deal with it. Would that be wrong? No, that would not be wrong. What is wrong would be trying to make it big. I hope that makes some sense. The, our goal is to make disciples, so that our lives. Our, our lives every day and our words and our actions affect others that they show Jesus Christ. But, you know, that's what First Peter 3.15 says. Be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you for the reason that lies within you and to do that with meekness and fear. Christianity is not to be focused on a Sunday meeting. Again, it's Christ in you and showing His grace to the world. So, uh, you know, in all practicality, we have to have places to meet. If we weren't meeting here, we'd be meeting someplace else. And um, that's, that's all well and good. And I think that, you know, that we need to understand that. And since we have this place, we're to be stewards of it. We're not to let it grow up in weeds. We're not to let the windows get broken. We're not to let, um, you know, the lights go dim and don't care and, and just use it and abuse it. We're to be stewards of what God has given us. And we'll maybe talk about how all that works out in our practicality. But I think that's just basic common sense. That's just basic human and Christian maturity that you take care of things. Hang up your clothes when you go home. Greg's not here today, he's not feeling well, or I would say something, wash your car at least once every two years, because that's what he does. <laughs> Whether it needs it or not, he's going to wash his truck once every two years. You know, we, 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 however, um, 
Those of you who know Greg knows that he has other things that he cleans on a regular basis. Okay? I won't, I won't, say, I won't say anything more than that. All right? You guys can sort all that out. But uh, meet, meeting is not commanded in the New Testament because it's an understood. Those people, because of the Holy Spirit within them, they were drawn together. And whenever Christianity is banned and meetings like this are banned, people long and yearn to gather. They have to. Ha- they find a place. They find a way to make it happen. The creativity of the human mind and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit drives them. And so the New Testament doesn't say, if you meet, it says... When you meet, and that's the overall message that we see that, that, that we see throughout the throughout the New Testament, through the Book of Acts, and through the epistles. But that that doesn't mean that we have to get involved in all of these contrivances that are out here. And I listed some of them, and you could probably think of some of them: youth ministry. And I, again, time I'm down to like two minutes here. Time doesn't allow me to go into all of this, but folks. Youth ministry is a concoction of modern man. It, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was non-existent. It wasn't even a thought before the Industrial Revolution. The people who wrote the documents for the founding of our country had no idea what it was. Abraham Lincoln had no idea what it was. All right. Sunday schools. And we've talked about this over and over again. And I'll, I'll just throw it out here uh, it's just in case we miss, missed it. Sunday school was started by a man in England who used Sunday mornings to teach kids who were working six days a week how to read. They were also a product of the Industrial Revolution and they were in sweatshops and factories and they were illiterate and sometimes unfed. And on Sunday mornings, he would gather together, gather them. His name was Robert Rains. You can look all this up. He would gather them together. He would feed them a good meal, and he would teach them so they would not be illiterate, so they could rise in their position in life and not just be used as pawns. That's how Sunday school started. That's why I was on Sunday. Our graded Sunday school system is a, a product of the modern educational movement, which is godless. Well, that's another story altogether. We have things now called singles ministry. Okay? I'm sorry, folks. I'm I'm not... uh, I'll just tell you that I'm cynical right up front. So you'll understand when I say that the reason we have singles ministry is for people to meet. Um, Adult ministry. I haven't figured that one out yet. Uh, <laughs> children's ministry. And once again, I'll, I'll talk to you. The reason why most churches have children's church is to, spare, is to allow more, more room for people with wallets to sit. The more wallets you have in your church, the more money you can have. And I know our crowd is down today, but we're at that we're at that particular point where it would behoove us, especially we got a whole bunch of these new babies coming up. In the next few years, it would behoove us to start something so there'd be more room for for adults. We won't. We want children to be with their parents. 
Now, there are New Testament things, like care for widows. How many churches do you know that have a care for a widow care care for? You know what I'm trying. How many know what I'm trying to say and can spit it out better than I can? A program that cares for widows. Do you even know of a church that has a program that is able to um, define what the Bible says is a widow indeed? A lot of churches have benevolence programs and have what they call deacons ministries where they're taking care of the needs of the congregation. And I, and I think that's a, that's a valuable thing. And I don't know that that's, that's a bad thing. But if we wanted to be really technical about Scripture, we're all to care for one another. And the only reason there were widows that had to be cared for was because there was no one else to care for them but the church. Now, here's what happens in these conferences. They bring in um, Frank Smith, who is in whatever town you like, Punxsutawney. I have no idea where that came from. Um, <laughs> where, when he went there, they, they only ran 15 groundhogs. Uh, that is the right town, isn't it? Isn't that where Punk's Tony Phil comes from? They only ran 15 wood, woodchucks. I guess woodchuck is the more politically correct term. No one wants to be called a groundhog, um, like we call him here. But at any rate, he only ran 15 woodchucks, but now he runs 1,500 woodchucks. And over the space of seven years, they've transformed their building, and they've built on, they've added on, they've added on, and they're involved in all these things out here in the community. So you go to this conference and you find out about how Pastor Smith, I think that's the name I gave him, um, ministered to all of these woodchucks and built this huge church. So all the pastors who go to that church go home, or excuse me, who go to that conference go home. They went to that conference trying to get some ideas and they go home under a greater burden than ever. That they're a failure. That they're doing something wrong. They don't have near as many woodchucks as Pastor Smith. They will implement maybe some of the things that Pastor Smith does. And they'll start ministries because ministries are how we assimilate people. Did you know that? That's one of the church growth concepts. That you start ministries to get people involved because if they're involved with other people, they will make friendships and the more friendships they have in the fellowship, the less likely they are to leave. Say, that's not why those ministries are started. Yes, it is. Anyone that tells you that your ministry is done on a certain time, at a certain day, in a certain place, is abusing Scripture. You are a believer 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Whatever gifts and callings you have from God are to be activated whenever you're awake. 
So it's, it puts these tremendous burden upon these pastors, and they start these ministries, and then they're constantly recruiting to try to get people involved in them. And those of you who've been in, I don't care what size of church it is, I don't care if it's 10,000 people, it's a handful of people that run all of these things. 80% of the work is done by 20% of the people. So they, 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 they have, they're under constant pressure. They put the congregation under pressure to staff them or they staff them themselves. How do we pay to get all of this done? So on and so forth. And, and because we've held this thing up here as our standard, it now becomes the mark of success that everybody else strives for. All right. Let me conclude this. <laughs> I'm so grateful that you didn't say amen. All right, so um, you're all wonderful people, but I see some threats in our future, and I want to share with them. Again, um, this is one of the dilemmas. I, you know, my, my brain is torn because so many of us are absent today, and all, almost all of our overseers are gone, and so... so but let me give you this. Number one, one of the great threats is that there will be a breakdown in our culture that will lead to persecution. I suggest to you that it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. I don't believe it'll be in my lifetime. I pray it's not in the lifetime of my grandkids. But it's more likely it'll be in their lifetime than in mine. I don't know. There will be a breakdown that leads to persecution. Here's the second threat, that we will fall into this status quo idea that bigger is better and our goal will be to get bigger. Our goal is to make disciples, to communicate, to communicate the gospel that we read about in Ephesians 2, that we read about in Romans 12. To communicate the gospel. Now, if number one happens, number two will take care of itself. If number one happens, there will be no more Sunday morning disciples. I'll just let that sit there. There's another area and where that that's that has obviously a, a theological base there's another area that we need to be aware of and it's got a couple aspects and and that other area is the gradual dilution of scriptural authority and it, there's two aspects of it one the first aspect is blending worldly culture with biblical truth where we kind of take what's going on in the world you know one of the men in my one of the men in my seminar said he sat down with the elders of the of his congregation and he and he tried to get them to determine what their vision th- should be through the next year by the way have you noticed that we don't do that I quit doing that years ago i mean i i can remember fully alive in 95 didn't work because we were no more fully alive at the start of 96 than we were at the start of 95 
And if you were really clever, you know, you always came up, it always rhymed. Because that's catchy. And these visions have to be catchy. Okay? Because people can't, I mean, people, people can't understand anything. They have to have a sound bite. You know? So, so we quit that. But this guy sat down and he said, I wanted, they, and they wanted to do this. And I, I should have kept my mouth shut. I told myself when I went in there I wasn't going to say anything. And, then I, and by the way, i got to tell you, in one meeting I sat right across from the president of the denomination. I sat like this with my hand over my name tag. <laughs> But I said to him, you know, I said, I've been doing this a lot of years and I've watched over and over again how the church has just put a coat of paint on a worldly principle. I don't know, I don't know how it went over, but I told the truth. This guy is frustrated as people because they won't set a vision. And... I'm sure there are other things, but that's not something to be upset about because it's not a biblical principle. What's the vision? Does the vision change every year? You need to stop and think about that. We've got a different goal next year than we're going to have this year. 2023, we're going to do this. So what is that? Well, we're going we're gonna to try to make disciples. Oh, what did you do in 2022? Well, we didn't do that. We just had dinners. It's, it's dumb. So, blending worldly culture with biblical truth. And that's, an, that's what's going on in the world. The world's, you know, somebody writes a book out here for the world, for the business people, and they say, well, you've got to have a vision. Your people got to understand, they've got to buy into the vision. They gotta, let me, the vision that we're to buy into is that we're all called to make disciples. Okay, I, I'm sorry, I keep going back to that. Let me go back to this principle. We take that thing, that vision, we say, well, we all got to have it. And so and we've just, we just incorporate it into the church, and it's worldly. Blending worldly culture with biblical truth. Now, not everything out here in the world is bad. You know, it, so you, you, there are things, you know, like, like coffee. Coffee's a good thing. I think it's in Scripture, but I haven't found it. Uh, it's in Hebrews. <laughs> well played, Tyler. Uh, well done. I didn't put him up to that because I didn't know I was going to say it, so I know he didn't have any idea. So, All right. oh. okay. Let us stop the audience participation before we get too carried away. I've got to get done here. The other, the other thing, which is quite the opposite of that, is being fearfully, uh, fearfully overemphasizing every minute area of doctrine and becoming nitpicking legalists. We've got people out here who are arguing over whether... Let me, let me rephrase this statement like this. If someone comes to this fellowship and, uh, and they are a believer or they become a believer, I don't care if they believe in evolution. 
if they're going to come and sit and listen, eventually we're going to talk about the earth is a young earth and that days are days and we're going to talk about it. And maybe they'll debate, maybe they'll argue. I, I, I don't care. The only thing I care about is if they start, they have a Bible study, you know, they're going to pull everybody in and they're going to say, I'm going to teach you that the earth's old. Well, then I'll have a problem with that. But if they will come and sit and listen, I don't care. And I'm not going to nitpick with them. I'm going to say, well, you don't agree with that. That's fine. You know why? Because the Holy Spirit has a way of showing us over a period of time. And so, well, when the Holy Spirit comes, He changes everything automatically and instantly. Well, He hasn't with me. Has he with you? I'm waiting to see who nods. Cause <laughs> so what we need is a solid doctrinal foundation that allows people to grow into it rather than, rather than make demands that they conform immediately. And it requires, here's the hard part, it requires discernment, judgment, and love. And those things equal maturity. And I said, I used the word fearfully, um, uh, purposefully, because, you know, folks make these doctrinal rules because they're afraid. They're afraid the gospel can't stand on its own. The truth of God can stand. And it will stand. And in the end, not one jot or tittle will be done away with. It will still be there. Heavenly Father, thank you for gracious people who got to hear a sermon for twice as many people. And so I'm sure it overwhelmed their brains. Um, There weren't as many of us here to absorb it. Lord, you know how I've wrestled with this. But my concern for us now and in the future is that we grab a hold of what you have for us and that we be what you want us to be and that out of our being we will do what you want us to do. I pray you protect us now, our kids, our grandkids, our nieces and nephews, that you protect our hearts against all the influence of this world. And I pray that as we move forward into the years to come, if you should tarry, that we'll be faithful to you and won't be pulled aside by the world or turn inward on ourselves. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.